No. So good morning. Uh, welcome back. Uh, welcome to those of you who were not here yesterday. Um, we have two papers this morning. Uh, first, we're going to start with is by Justin McCrary and Sarath Sangha um, on the general equilibrium of mass incarceration. And to make sure they both have room up here, I'm going to sit down in front and but I'll flash them with their little you're out of time cards as appropriate. Thanks a lot. I'm Justin McCrary. This is uh, Sarath Sangha, my co-author on this paper. Thanks to Cato. Uh, thanks to the discussants for taking a peek at the paper, um, or unfortunately, uh, perhaps even a detailed look at the paper. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what we wanted to talk to you about today is uh, entitled General Equilibrium Effects of Prison on Crime, Evidence from International Comparisons. Um, there's lots of interesting areas that people focus on when they focus on crime and what moves it around. Uh, an important Thing that we're not going to talk about today is apprehension technologies. I personally think that that may be one of the most important changes in uh, how government uh, combats crime. Apprehension technologies range from things like additional police officers to what kind of resources you give police officers to cameras. Uh, cameras is a particular technology I'm interested in because there's been a rash of uh, uh, snatch and grabs uh, around my, uh, my children's preschool. And so I've been actually uh, talking with the police department about setting up cameras because it's the same guys who have been doing this for two years now, right? They're very clever about how they do it. They smash and grab, and then they don't for three months. And so then they smash and grab again at a random point, you know, roughly about four times a year. Uh, and that's apparently just the level where you fly underneath the radar. So cameras is a great example of a technology that's very, very helpful uh, for apprehending someone who's engaging in something like that and very effective. There's also punishment te technologies. Punishment technologies are uh, probably the major thing that the United States, at least, has invested in over the last 40 years. Primarily by punishment technologies, what we mean is something like a longer prison sentence than you otherwise would have faced. Uh, there's something else as well, which is conditions of confinement. For example, if a prison is a less palatable place, then one imagines that there would be less of an interest in engaging in crime. Certainly with respect to prison overcrowding, that's something that people have talked about. Sexual assault in prisons is another thing that people have talked about. Once you start talking international comparisons, of course people begin to think along the lines of chopping off of hands or branding or things along those lines that are done in other countries that are not done here. And all of those things may well uh, be ways of, uh, of reducing crime. That's not something that in the United States people consider doing, uh, but that's something that's uh, uh, worth thinking about. And then also what we're uh, going to be thinking more about today is what you might call something like the collateral effects. Uh, well, what do we mean by collateral effects? Well, sometimes there's side effects associated with a particular government policy that's uh, seeking to combat crime. So one thing that people tend to think of when they think of crimes, they tend to think of those people in prison are the dangerous people. And those people who are not in prison are the nice people, you know, people like us, you and me. And when you think of it that way, that's really very misleading. So something like a third of the people who are in prison are going to be released by the end of this year. So when you begin to think of a very large prison system, the wrong way to think of it is that's the place where we're going to keep the dangerous people. The right way to think of it is there's a waiting area where conditions are rather dangerous and where it's true most of the bad uh, uh, most of the people who are there are people who might concern you. And what we're going to do is we're going to put a very large number of people together with them in the waiting area, and then they're going to be predictably released. So one thing that you might think of with respect to uh, government, uh, government investments and punishment is eventually most people actually will be released, even if you go with the most punitive sentences you can conceive of simply because you don't have enough money to bankroll uh, the most punitive system that you could think of. 
So the United States, for example, has uh, increased punishment quite dramatically, and we're still going to have uh, a substantial rollout of people from prison back into uh, society. And the extent to which those individuals are changed by virtue of the experience is something that people have referred to as the prison reentry problem. So our real focus is going to be on the effect of prison on crime. And one of the reasons to focus on that is that if you're trying to understand the optimal allocation of the last dollar spent on criminal justice between, say, punishment and apprehension, a very important trade-off that there's not nearly enough uh, research on, uh, that actually requires that you isolate the relative deterrence effects of apprehension and punishment. It also requires, although I didn't emphasize this in, uh, in my paper from 2009 that the slide is referencing, it also requires that you isolate the, uh, the general equilibrium of effects or all of these collateral effects that you might conceive of. Okay? And uh, just to talk briefly about what some of those are, I already uh, queued up the discussion of these reentry effects, so to speak. If prison is scarring, that's very concerning uh, for a person who's concerned about crime, because if it is scarring and we release you back into society, you may actually have an elevated crime rate relative to what you would have done. You could imagine it going the exact opposite way, of course, where uh, prison is such a terrifying place that you're then scared straight and never want to do it again to avoid that experience. That would actually then be protected against crime, which one of those things uh, nets out to have the overall effect is not so obvious a priori. And then there's other types of effects that you might think of as well. For example, Richard Freeman has talked a lot about uh, uh, replacement effects, which is to say uh, if you think of the number of criminal opportunities as being scarce relative to the pool of individuals who are willing to do the work. Uh, so this is the story uh, that was on everybody's minds during the crack epidemic when uh, the drug trade uh, was taking place largely on street corners, and it was fairly obvious to police officers, at least they thought, that if you arrest an individual who is, uh, say, for example, selling drugs, you'd come back the next day and there'd be another person who was doing the exact same work, right? And so that's a model that says that this replacement of the, uh, of the labor, so to speak, uh, is something that's going to say, well, we're not going to get much of a crime reduction out of this attempt to put individuals behind bars, and that emerges from the scarcity of the criminal opportunities relative to the number of people willing to do it. And there's uh, models in development economics along the same lines for uh, work in the uh, capital city, for example. Uh, there's as well stigma effects. Uh, many people have noticed that one of the major reasons why an individual might be concerned about engaging in crime is the long-run stigma effects on that person throughout their lifespan of having been, for example, in prison. Once you get to a certain scale of imprisonment, it actually becomes less of a stigmatizing event because it's so prevalent in a particular community. So there are communities in the U.S. where roughly half of people are going to uh, have a prison record by the end of their lifespan. So within that community, that's much less stigmatizing than you might have thought. So there's a sort of a danger in having something that is sort of a, a scarlet letter beyond almost everybody that you see, right? Which is then it's much less of a scarlet letter suddenly. So uh, that's another thing that people have talked about as well. And then the literature picking up on these side effects, so to speak, of uh, punishment policy, something that's extremely difficult. There's not much of an obvious way of doing it. Now, one of the things that we wanted to, uh, to think of with respect to uh, this kind of uh, consideration is that general equilibrium effects are something that are extremely difficult to tease out. Right? Everybody knows this. The, the typical way that one would do the uh, kind of evaluation that we're doing is actually not at all empirical. It's rather, uh, I'm going to postulate a model that I actually believe is correct. It's a structural model where we're going to talk about various mechanisms, and then we're going to trace out in the context of that model what are the general equilibrium effects of a ramp up of imprisonment. Okay? And that's, of course, a natural way to tackle the problem, because most of the time it's so hard to pin things down uh, with respect to the empirical work. But with respect to imprisonment, 
there's an empirical approach that suggests itself, which is that if you look in the data, and not everybody knows this, but this is why you have scholars who uh, tackle such questions, uh, it turns out the US ramp up of incarceration is unique internationally. Okay, and so our basic idea was to see, well, is the ramp up of imprisonment in the United States sufficiently unique that we can actually try and look at long run comparisons of criminality between the US and comparison countries and try and see is it really right that there are lower crime rates today in the US than there are in comparison countries, in particular, relative to ourselves and them in 1970 or 1960? Okay, so this is essentially the, uh, the figure that motivated us to study this question. This is a, a look at the very long run of incarceration rates between three naturally comparable countries, uh, although these are not the only countries you would consider. They're uh, some of the leading ones. So the solid dark line is the United States. On the y-axis, you have incarceration. On the x-axis, you have time. Uh, the dashed line is Canada. And the dashed and dotted line is England and Wales. Uh, there is no particular good reason why we've excluded Scotland other than that we haven't finished uh, cleaning the data. Uh, so uh, Scotland might be another relevant comparison. They basically look exactly like England and Wales. What you see in the figure is for a long time, say from roughly uh, 1900, call it, uh, through 1970, uh, incarceration rates fluctuated a little bit up and down, had a little bit of a northward trend for, uh, say, for example, Canada or England and Wales. But generally, people were in the range of 100 per 100,000 or a little bit south of that. Okay? Starting in uh, 1970, the US begins a long series of investments in punishment policy. Okay, so penal policy in the United States shifted dramatically to the right. That is to say, sentence lengths, where a sentence length is understood here as a, an admixture of increases in conviction, increases in sentence lengths conditional on conviction, and declines in rates of probation or parole. Okay, so once the criminal justice system gets you, they're actually much less likely to release you. Okay, and that's a, uh, something that you might say all of that altogether is kind of like an increase in the expected sentence length for an individual who has just been arrested. Okay, the expected sentence length that they're conceiving of is now uh, dramatically shifted to the right. And what you see over the long haul is that from 1970 to uh, 2010, the increase has gone from 100 per 100,000 to 500 per 100,000. Okay, so about a 400% increase. That's a little bit uh, starker if you fold in, for example, the jail population. This is only uh, prisons at the state and the federal level. And of course, is all the stronger if you fold in the probation population and the parole population. The difficulty is that the international statistics become much less available. So uh, a very, very big problem with respect to any kind of cross-national study of imprisonment trends and crime trends is availability of data. And getting comparable uh, measures is, is quite a challenge. Uh, unfortunately, not every uh, country in the world believes that they should collect information that's helpful for our project. So, right. so, so we, we have to uh, go to a little bit uh, of, of extra effort to make sure that the series are comparable and read carefully in the code books. So you might have imagined that we cherry pick those countries to show that the US is uh, a strong outlier. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to review a, a broader set of countries as well, just to kind of clarify the basic point, which is that it's very hard to find a country which does what the US did over the last, say, 30, 40 years. So this is a figure that's much shorter in terms of its time span because of availability of data. So it starts in 1970 rather than in, say, 1870, like the first figure. Uh, and shows data for a broader swath of countries. Okay, so up here we've got uh, Poland and Hungary, 
uh, right? So uh, former Eastern Bloc countries, New Zealand, Bulgaria, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Australia, Austria, France, Ireland, Denmark, and Japan. Uh, Japan really doesn't like to imprison people. On the other hand, uh, crime rates are really, really, really low in Japan. What's what's the robbery per like count? One. One per hundred, yeah. So anyway, uh, there's uh, there's some outliers with respect to both crime as well as incarceration uh, in the international data, right? Um, for example, the Canadians are always so polite, if you notice that. So, so there's a sense in which some of these <laughs> international comparisons are going to be a little bit dicey. And so that's something that I think is a, is a problem for the paper. It's, of course, not right that uh, Canada is a complete uh, stand-in for what would have happened in the United States if we had not increased our uh, prisoners per, uh, per 100,000 population. But that's the type of thing that we want to entertain. It's, of course, wrong in some literal sense. The question is whether it might be a, approximately right enough so to get us a good answer as to the policy question. So what we think uh, the first two figures are persuasive of is uh, to quote Doug from, uh, from yesterday. Doug, I can barely see you because of the lights. Uh, but uh, one of these things doesn't look like the others. And it's the US incarceration rate. Okay, so, right, so we're up substantially. So let me first show you some information from England and Wales with respect to uh, crime rates. So crime is a murky object, okay? Um, I, I'm sure we all learned at some point in uh, some class 101 uh, that crime is a socially constructed idea, right? So it, on some level, coming up with a, a, a clear definition of what a crime is is very difficult. And in particular, if you look in most countries' uh, data, they report to you something like a crime aggregate, which is the sum of crimes across all possible crime categories. And that's unfortunately the least useful uh, statistical quantity to look at. Uh, and the reason is that, for example, if you look only at violent crime, well, that includes assaults. And everybody who actually studies crime agrees that assaults is one of these things that changes very much over time as the police change the right, their idea about what constitutes assault, right? So uh, circa 1970 in the U.S., if I get into a scuffle with a friend at a bar about the basketball game that was on, say, for example, uh, you know, Heat versus Celtics, then uh, just to choose one example that's uh, you know, near and dear to the hearts of uh, some of us here in the front row. Uh, you know, if I get into a scuffle with a friend outside of the bar over that, nothing is going to come of that. That's not going to be considered a crime. Actually, if you track forward to today and the police are there, they probably actually will arrest one or the other, other of you for assault. Okay, so this idea of what constitutes crime is something that changes a lot over time, even for something like violent crime. Assaults, by the way, are the most common violent crimes. And so what that means is that your aggregate trends that uh, get reported to you by countries are actually the least useful thing because the largest uh, portion of violent crime actually comes from the thing that's measured least well and that you understand least well. Similarly for property crimes, what moves that around is larceny. Uh, larceny is what's uh, known in criminology as the, uh, as the garbage can. So uh, they refer to it that way because it's where you put kind of all of these crimes you don't know really uh, how they're counted over time. For example, there's a nominal floor on what counts as a larceny in, uh, in most countries' data. So property crime series are um, moved around in the same uh, perverse way. So with respect to crimes, probably the three crimes that are generally regarded as being most carefully measured, although there are still some caveats there, are homicide for the obvious reason that it's harder to hide a body, right? Uh, than it is for other types of crimes. Uh, it's very easy to hide, for example, a shoplifting uh, episode, very hard comparatively to hide a body. Motor vehicle theft, and that's because in most countries you have to report the theft of your vehicle to the police in order to get compensation from your insurance. Okay? And the third is robbery, and that's because that's believed to be, of those three, the least carefully measured, but 
of the remaining crime categories the most carefully measured because that's a very serious crime where most people feel as though they've been seriously compromised in terms of their, their liberty and they tend to report that. So those are the three crime series that we're going to focus on. And actually, we've been able to get comparable data on that for a large number of countries. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll just pause to say there was a lot of man hours there. <laughs> All right. So with respect to the incarceration rate, uh, you see what you saw before. Uh, the US versus England and Wales, we were generally similar between 60 and 70, with a slight difference in trend. In case of the US might actually even be trending south between 60 and 70 in terms of their imprisonment rate. Some people have uh, pointed to that, for example, as possibly being implicated with respect to the ramp up in crime that started around uh, 1960 in the US. England and Wales had the, uh, the same uh, level, but a slightly different trend. So they were trending a little bit up as we were trending a little bit south. Okay? But ballpark, we were all around 100 per 100,000. And then over time, we got up to closer to 500, and they're kind of up around 130 or so. Okay? If you look at the homicide rate, the solid line is the US. Okay, and many people have looked at this series uh, for a variety of different uh, uh, papers. Right? So this is, this is, in many ways, a famous series. In fact, you, you may have already kind of known what this series shows. First off, you see a skyrocketing homicide rate in the US between 1960 and 1970. Okay? It continues to go up. It actually stays at a relatively constant level. Okay? You see a big spike up again in the late 1980s. This is the crack epidemic. And then starting in 1990, you see the spectacular decline in homicide that all of us have benefited from uh, that in some ways contributes to some sense that uh, Manhattan is a fun place to go and catch a Broadway show. Right? So this decline in crime that you see is something that many people have said, you know, well, should we really think of the incarceration rate in the U.S. and its elevated level uh, compared to itself historically? Should we think of that as being the root cause of this decline? There's lots of other potential causes, uh, but that's really the one that people have uh, focused a lot of their attention on. And so that's, that's a perfectly good question. Uh, it, of course, is a little bit problematic in terms of the timing, which is that, as you see from the figure, we, of course, began to ramp up incarceration well before you see this crime decline. So we began to ramp up incarceration circa 1970, and the crime decline begins around 1990. Okay? And uh, a slide or two, I'll actually emphasize for you exactly how fragile that notion of timing is, which is there's a strong sense in which, actually, the crime decline should have occurred before the incarceration rate begins to take off. And I'll walk through those dynamics with you. Um, and one problem with respect to that kind of an inference that's a natural one for people to have drawn and that uh, many people have drawn in the literature, uh, that setting aside those concerns, the crime decline may actually be uh, due to the incarceration rate, is that England and Wales has a similar bump in terms of dangerousness. So you see, for example, around 2005 that there's a big spike in the homicide rate in England and Wales. And you also see a big decline afterwards. In fact, uh, they're probably not done with their crime decline. So there's something very interesting where you'd say, well, these, these periodic episodes of criminality uh, definitely happen, right? So for example, if you look on the right-hand scale, which is homicides per 100,000 for England and Wales, you see that uh, we go basically from a homicide rate of 1 up to a homicide rate of 2.5 in the span of about uh, 10 to 15 years. So homicides can go way up. And this is true for all crime categories. Uh, they can go way up and they can go way down, and that's actually quite common. Okay? So with respect to um, motor vehicle theft, you notice that it has quite a different 
timing with respect to the hump. The hump with respect to motor vehicle theft is extraordinarily similar in terms of the timing relative to the US. So some people have uh, pointed towards technologies that people share across the pond as to how to steal cars. Uh, that's uh, certainly possible. Certainly it's right that in the manufacturing of vehicles, there's kind of a, a, an arms race between uh, various uh, protective devices uh, in terms of preventing your car from being stolen and uh, what criminals have to do uh, about this. The arms race is best uh, actually exemplified by bike theft, but we don't have time to talk about that today. Um, I, I promise you, though, if you install a lock on your bicycle right, that you ride, in two years, they will have figured out how to take care of that lock. And the arms race with respect to locks is, is fun stuff to look at. The robbery rate, by the way, looks the exact same as the homicide rate in terms of the comparisons. Uh, so robbery and homicide... Uh, there's no obvious a priori reason why those two should be related. Occasionally, it's right that a rob robbery goes bad and a homicide results, but a lot of the time, not. Right? So robberies are much more prevalent uh, than are homicides. If you look on the scale, for example, there's about, in the beginning, uh, 50 robberies per 100,000. By the time we're done, 250,000 at the end, at the peak of the, uh, of the crime wave in the U.S., and that's compared to, say, a homicide rate at its peak of 10 per 100,000. Right? So robberies are, are a much more common crime, and they seem, however to be driven by some common, uh, if we were talking about financial markets, we might even talk about animal spirits or something like that. Here, that seems all the more uh, relevant. <laughs> so there's something about these two series that moves very similarly in the US, right? And that's also true for England and Wales, right? So they have something like a violence episode that occurs around 2005, maybe a little bit earlier for the robbery series, and then you see the crime decline in England and Wales start to kick in. Now, I'd like to with your permission, uh, talk with uh, some more slightly technical details. I think this actually helps us a lot with respect to fleshing out what we should expect to see uh, between crime and incarceration rates. And this may look intimidating for those of you who don't uh, enjoy doing math problems at night, but for those of you who do, uh, I can explain it to you. And it turns out I can even explain it to those of you who don't like to do math problems at night. Okay, so this is really a representation that says the stock of people in prison today, that's Q is really a representation that's summarizing for you the cohort decomposition of people who are in prison. So the people who are in prison today, they got there somehow, right? And getting there somehow means that they were either not in prison yesterday, that's one minus Q, did crime, that's G, got caught, that's P, and then got a sentence length of at least one period. That's this probability that S is greater than or equal to S, okay? Or, they were free two periods ago. That's, again, 1 minus Q. They did something. That's G. They got caught for it. That's P. And then they got a sentence of at least two periods. So that's the probability that the sentence is greater than or equal to two periods. And so on and so forth. Okay? And that's basically all that this uh, equation for Q is actually supposed to represent. It's just the cohort decomposition of those who are in prison. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting about that is you can walk through a variety of interesting calculations for yourself. For example, in steady state, you can uh, calculate quite easily what's the fraction of people who are in prison if the sentencing policy has been unchanged for a long period of time and the probability of apprehension has been unchanged for a long period of time. Uh, parenthetically, I should say, in the US, the probability of apprehension has been about 0.08 for the last 30, 40 years, as far as anybody can tell. It doesn't budge, except for possibly with respect to murder, where it's been in a long run linear slide. Uh, that's true as far as we can tell in uh, almost any other country. That's important if you're trying to map out secular trends and you're wondering what other confounders are out there. Uh, probability of apprehension is probably not among them. So 
setting that aside, the elasticity of the incarcerated population with respect to an expected sentence length is substantially less than one. Okay, and the reason why it's substantially less than one is in part because when you increase sentence lengths, right, one of the things that happens is that the crime rate goes down. And one of the best tricks, every parent in the room knows this, one of the best tricks with respect to punishment is to devise a punishment that's so effective that your kid never actually misbehaves. And then you never have to punish, right? That's what everybody wants to accomplish. That's what uh, societies want to accomplish overall. If I can threaten you with a punishment that scares you sufficiently that you don't do it, well, then I actually don't have to inflict anything upon you. And we're both the better off for it, at least we imagine. So in that case, you'd say, well, there's a sense in which actually your incarcerated population could even go down, actually, if the punishment scares enough people off from engaging in crime. And to walk through that, let's talk about two different types of policy reforms and how we would expect to see the dynamics of that trace out with respect to the incarceration rate and the crime rate. So in this figure, this is, uh, by the way, this is not data. Uh, this, is, this is hypothetical, right? So this is, this is why everything looks so smooth suddenly, right? So what we're looking at here is two hypothetical policy reforms that take place as of a point in time. Uh, I was concerned that the vertical line here uh, this dashed line. It wasn't going to show up, but actually it even shows up on the slides. So the vertical line there, the dashed line, is the beginning of a change in policy, where we say, okay, as of this point in time, let's engage in an increase, an instantaneous increase, in the distribution of sentence lengths facing offenders. That is, they shift to the right, kind of like they did circa 1970. And we're going to think of that as a one-time change. We're not going to do anything else later on. Okay, so we're just going to, at one point in time, we're going to uh, change things. And then you see two different solid dash lines on the figure. The first that's a little bit below is if you have a modest deterrence elasticity of minus 0.4. And the other that's much below is if you have a fairly big deterrence elasticity of minus 1.2. Okay? The gradual shift is instead a policy experiment that says, actually what we're going to do is more like what we actually did probably, which is we're going to increase the sentence lengths facing offenders each year and roughly linearly, okay? And so you'd see a gradual shift there as opposed to an instantaneous shift with respect to the crime rate. And now the interesting thing is what happens with respect to incarceration with those two different policy shifts? This is a slide that's worth taking some time to think over. So the instantaneous shift, if there is no deterrence, that's the top solid line. The instantaneous shift says, in the beginning, you actually don't see much of an increase in the incarceration rate. And the reason why you don't see much of an increase is your incarceration population is more like the ocean. And what you're really talking about is the change in the temperature of the atmosphere. It's going to take a long time for the ocean to heat up relative to the atmosphere. If you've ever uh, tried to go swimming in, say, May in a state like Michigan, you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's not until August that you really want to get into Lake Michigan. And the prison population is much like that. It takes a long time after a change in sentencing regime for the prison population to reflect that sentencing regime. For a long time, most of the people were still sentenced under the old regime, not the new regime. And so that's part of why, even though you see this instantaneous shift in policy, you see a very gentle undulation up in the incarceration rate in the left panel in the top, uh, top curve. Now, that's assuming no deterrence. If you fold in deterrence, right, remember, that's the situation where crime is actually lower because of the policy. Well, even if you have a modest elasticity like minus 0.4, what that implies is that in the very beginning 
of this new policy regime, right? Crime is a little bit lower, which actually means that most of the people who are in prison, they're exiting prison at the same date that they otherwise were going to, because most of them were sentenced under the old regime. But what you've done is you've slowed the rate of inflow into the prison population. So actually, if you go with an instantaneous shift in policy into modest elasticity, modest deterrence elasticity, when you increase the, the expected sentence length facing an offender, you should see a reduction in the incarceration rate in the short term. And then over time, the exit rate begins to slow down as well because more and more people are sentenced under the new regime as opposed to the old regime. And there's a crossing condition where eventually, right, that exit rate effect swamps the inflow effect. And in the minus 0.4 case, for example, you see a, a gap of about two years. Okay, if you calibrate that back to US data. It takes about two years for the exit flow effect to dominate the inflow effect. If you take a more healthy elasticity, like a minus 1.2, where people are genuinely scared off from crime by virtue of uh, the increase in the expected sentence length, you see the, the parent's fantasy, which is that the incarceration rate is actually lower overall because enough people are scared off from the crime. Okay, and so that actually says that you get, for example, a positive association between apprehension, uh, between, sorry, between crime and incarceration, even in the long run. Let me, let me say that again. You'd get a positive association. So if you did what a lot of papers do in the, in the literature and you run a regression, for example, of growth rates in crime on uh, growth rates in incarceration, you get a perverse effect. And this uh, highlights for you that even if the deterrence elasticities are not the massive ones of minus 1.2 or more modest ones, the short-run frequencies of incarceration are actually possibly going to be dominated by these perverse effects. Okay, so that means it's, it's very, very hard to do, this, to do this right. The gradual shift in policy, by the way, uh, has a flavor of the same problem. Okay, so you actually can't perceive it on the graph visually, but it is still true that for the first two years of the policy or so, there's a little bit of a depressed level of the incarceration rate, and then eventually the exit flow uh, effect dominates the inflow effect. Okay, it's harder to see visually, but that's basically the same type of story. Okay, the reason why that's relevant is that it tells you that long differences are going to be required in order to get away from these sort of perverse uh, problems. It's also true that the long run effects are still going to be incorrect if there are very big deterrence elasticities associated with an increase in expected sentences. Okay, so there's a fair number of caveats there. Uh, it's also true, I should backtrack a little bit briefly, uh, that if you try to understand how you could get a gentle undulation up like you see in the US incarceration rate, there's kind of prima facie evidence there against very big deterrence elasticities associated with an increase in expected sentences, which is that as the slide shows you, the only real way to get a very high increase is actually to not have a very big deterrence elasticity. Or you have to imagine that you have a successive series of increases to expected sentence lengths associated with a whole series of positive crime shocks, which could, of course, also occur. Uh, but in some ways, an easier inference, uh, choosing the principle of parsimony, would be that uh, perhaps we could explain the same set of facts with a smaller deterrence elasticity and a smaller increase in the expected sentence length. 
So the international comparisons that we draw on, I, I don't have enough time to, to go through all the details of the data. I encourage you to take a peek at the paper if you're interested in that kind of thing. If it turns out you're one of the odd birds who knows more about international crime statistics than we do, please call us or write us an email. Uh, it's very, very hard to get these comparisons nailed down. And we think we've done the best, uh, the best job that we can on this, but we'd like to do better. Uh, and it, it may still be possible. Uh, so what I'm going to show you next is a set of comparisons that are focusing on these long differences in crime. And what the earlier slides persuaded you of, I hope, is that short-run differences are actually possibly affected by uh, these kinds of perverse effects. And so what you want to really focus on is the long-run changes. Okay? And what you see here on the y-axis is the effect of a change in the log incarceration rates. Okay? And on the x-axis, you see the number of years over which that difference is being taken. Okay, so for example, the 10-year slice is associated with uh, a 0.2 in terms of robbery. And the 20-year slice is associated with a 0.2 as well. At 15 years, it's more like a 0.25. Okay, so this is, or maybe a 0.3. So this is more like uh, running a regression over a very, very long haul. And to be clear, the robbery series is suggestive, actually, that over the very long haul, the increase in incarceration actually leads to increases in robbery. Okay? For homicide, you get the opposite sign. Okay? Over the long haul, you'd see an elasticity that looks more along the lines of minus 0.2 or something along those lines. Uh, with respect to motor vehicle theft, you'd see over the long haul an elasticity that looks more like minus 0.1. From the paper, if you're trying to keep track, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, this is from figure five uh, in the paper. And uh, this is basically a different type of an approach where we're basically doing what I uh, argued before is not quite as plausible uh, as the long-run differences, which is we're taking a standard panel data approach where we run a regression of the log, growth, uh, log crime rate on year effects uh, and uh, fixed effects for the city, uh, for the uh, country rather, and the log incarceration rate. And the reason why I said that's not quite as plausible is that that may actually run afoul of this problem with the perverse signs associated with the short-run changes in incarceration. But if you do that type of an exercise, you get the uh, positive effects that you saw on robbery, you get negative effects on homicide, and you get negative effects on auto theft. In the paper, we walk through uh, the extent to which it's uh, incorrect that you should be uh, willing to believe in the magnitudes of those elasticities due to these perverse effects that we talk about. That means there's a slight discount factor that should be applied to each of these estimates. And the exact discount factor depends on uh, the types of effects that you would uh, expect to see with respect to the change in the sentencing regime. And I'll close with the comparison with Canada. Canada is probably a much more natural fit uh, to the US than uh, England and Wales. You see in the upper left panel the incarceration rate, which shows essentially the same pattern that you saw for England and Wales, which is flat for the comparison state, right, and skyrocketing for the US. With respect to the homicide rate, you see that uh, perhaps uh, to many people's surprise, uh, these two series actually track each other quite well. The US homicide rate is quite a bit lower than is the US homicide rate. Uh, the US is a very dangerous place with respect to homicide. Property theft is much more similar across countries uh, than is uh, homicide. Homicide uh, were one of the world's leaders, us, South Africa, and Russia. Um, but what you see is that the ramp up in homicide rates is basically the same in Canada as it is here once you uh, get rid of the scaling differences. Okay? 
So I suppose that they became slightly less polite at the same rate that we became slightly less polite. Uh, and then you see that as well, they have something like the crime decline that you see, but it's smaller. Their crime decline is smaller than ours was. And probably one of the big open questions is the extent to which you want to leave uh, uh, the blame for that at differences in incarceration rates. My own instinct is that that's probably not right, but I, I am totally open to the possibility that I'm wrong about that. Motor vehicle theft, you see that the series mirror each other as well, but there's a difference in the inflection point. So the inflection point for the, uh, for the US is probably 1990, about what the murder and the, motor and the robbery uh, inflection point is. Canada, it's probably closer to uh, 1998, uh, maybe even as late as 2000. And the robbery rate in Canada uh, shows very much the same types of trends that you saw with respect to homicide, but more exaggerated, where you see very clearly there that the decline in crime is uh, more, more pronounced in the US than it is uh, in Canada. So conclusions, uh, the incarceration rate in the US grew very rapidly from 70 to 90. Uh, despite the crime decline that uh, began in 1990, the incarceration rate continued to increase through 2008. The last two years have actually finally shown a decline in the incarceration rate, and that means that we've probably finally gotten to the point where the python is done swallowing the pig, uh, which is to say it's probably right that we're now going to uh, be done with the heavy lifting of uh, finishing the inheritance of past changes in penal policy. So these long lags uh, means that perhaps the temperature in Lake Michigan is what it is in August, not in May, right? So uh, that shift to more punitive policy is one that many people have talked about, whether that has a big deterrence effect. Uh, if it had very big deterrence effects, we should have seen transitory declines in the incarceration rate contemporaneous with the increases in punitiveness. That is to say, more wiggle in the incarceration rate, perhaps even a blip down in some of the initial years. Possibly it's right that that uh, was hard to detect visually, but uh, that's something that's uh, an outstanding challenge for the literature. And if this shift were responsible for the decline in crime in the 1990s and uh, throughout the noughts in the US, then the outstanding puzzle is really why similar countries uh, who had very unrelated penal policy changes uh, shared so much of that crime decline. And possibly one way out of that is to say, everybody's gonna have the crime decline, but ours is gonna be yet bigger. Now I'll leave there, thanks. How do I switch to they do it? They do it for you. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, uh, first of all, uh, let, me, uh, let me thank Jeff for uh, inviting me to discuss this paper, which I, I found quite interesting. And uh, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, first to give you my perspective on what the contribution is, not just for the paper, but for the research program associated with the paper. I mean, this really is a first step in what I, I perceive to be a longer run uh, 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 set of analyses. And then uh, second, I'm going to uh, uh, engage in my usual uh, uh, boorish behavior of trying to uh, criticize the paper. Uh, my, my only defense is I sent them the slides in advance, so uh, they, they, they know what, uh, what I'm going to say. All right, so the serious point, to be uh, more seriously, I, the, the, the idea of this paper, and it's a very important idea, is to ask whether or not one can, can measure general equilibrium <coughs> effects to, uh, uh, with respect to imprisonment without the use of a structural model. 
And so the thought experiment here is to exploit the dissimilarities and imprisonment rates across comparable policy, polities and use a sort of a difference in difference philosophy, as it were, in terms of pinning down the, uh, the role of imprisonment. Now, in doing that, there's actually two methodological contributions in the paper, and one of them, I thought, I think the paper underestimates, uh, no pun intended. Uh, the first is that there's a careful distinction in the paper between the transition dynamics and steady state properties of, uh, of changes in, in, in imprisonment. And that I, is received, as far as uh, I know, and unfortunately, I've uh, uh, read quite a bit of the literature on, on time series analysis of capital punishment, so on that I can speak with some authority. The notion of the distinction between dynamics and steady states has received grossly inadequate attention, and I think that the uh, authors should be less modest in uh, touting that, uh, that contribution. I think really is an important point. The second methodological contribution is the extension of uh, efforts to understand deterrence to the use of cross-country uh, comparisons and, uh, and then the, uh, the uh, conclusion and, and the, the doing so in a way that, uh, that avoids the usual criticisms of structural models in terms of uh, either functional form or even substantive behavioral assumptions. Now, I think it's fair to say that the first methodological contribution is uncontroversial in the sense that when one thinks about the dynamics of, of aggregates, it's natural to ask questions about transitions as opposed to steady states. And so the only sense in which uh, I would have any questions about that is what I'm referring to as details, and I think just in some of them. But the point is they're details. The, the idea is <clears throat> the deep idea is uncontroversial, and it's a clear contribution. The second uh, methodological contribution, however, is controversial, and uh, and I th I think um, in some sense it it reflects uh, much of the fighting or the disagreements that go around, uh, that exist in empirical microeconomics in particular, and that is the relationship between economic theory and empirical work. Now, uh, this paper tries to use the data, as it were, to draw substantive inferences. I want to be clear in, that I'm, uh, I live in the other camp. In other words, I'm much more of a, uh, oriented towards asking how one can facilitate uh, empirical inference using uh, uh, social science theory. And so one should interpret my comments as devil's advocate type, uh, type of perspectives. In other words, there's no, there's no consensus in economics about the right way to do empirical work. And uh, when we invent the equivalent of quantum mechanics, then we, uh, we get to have a consensus. But at this point, uh, I, uh, there, there's, no, uh, there's no reason to think one methodology is ex ante better than the other. And so my objective is to sort of articulate the concerns I have about uh, uh, this, this particular approach. But I want to make clear this is the beginning of a research program. And uh, uh, it's going to evolve. And many of the uh, concerns I have certainly will be addressed in the course of uh, of the evolution of this type of, of, uh, of research. All right, well, there's really two, two big issues in my mind that one, one needs to come to grips with in thinking about this type of uh, exercise. The first has to do with the comp what it means to say that polities are similar. In other words, the thought experiment, as Justin said, was that we identify, or one identifies ex ante, countries that we think are similar enough where doing the difference in difference exercise is meaningful. And so, Justin, for example, did not stand up and say, well, why don't we use the United States and Russia as the two countries and see what happened? <laughs> for the obvious reasons that there's so many factors we think would affect both imprisonment and crime that the exercise itself would uh, not, not be interpretable. Okay? And so that then leads to the question as to uh, you know, what we mean by comparability and whether or not comparability translates into a statistical analog that justifies uh, 
the use of the difference in difference of points. I, I'm glad to know that uh, Scotland was only exempted because of lack of uh, data. Since my wife's partly Scottish, I took it as a personal front. Uh, though I've always accused your family of being criminal, so that, that, that's okay. All right. So the, the idea basically in, in the analysis, I think, is that, um, that one translates this qualitative notion of comparability. I mean, after all, one would, you know, in, in common language, say the U.S. and Canada are more similar than the U.S. and Russia into a much more precise statement, which is that if you look at the changes in the incarcer over some long period of incarceration in, the, in two countries versus uh, crime rates in two countries, that some, that's informative about deterrence. Now, what that in essence is doing is implicitly making the assumption that you can sort of eliminate the other factors that are associated with crime and Though they don't push this, they might even like the interpretation. I think it also is an argument that one can purge aspects of imprisonment that, that are not related to the sanction regime. In other words, you think that there's some endogeneity. Well, if that endogeneity is driven by the common factors of the two countries, just as they cancel out with respect to the crime rates, they need to cancel out with respect to the incarceration rates. So there's really two levels at which the notion of comparability is being employed as a, uh, or is being translated into uh, statements about the interpretability <coughs> of the difference in different strategy. Okay, now, of course, uh, that leads to the question is whether or not the statistical interpretation is comparable. So now I want to switch from common language to asking uh, about the, uh, the statistical uh, aspects of this. Now, you know, in my view at this point, it's hard, it's hard for me to be persuaded that the, that the exercise uh, has as strong an interpretation as the authors do. Now, the first comment I'd make is, remember, the issue is not comparability, but it's comparability with respect to two objects, crime and imprisonment rates. And in some sense, that puts the authors behind the, the eight ball because they've identified a feature, at least one feature, that's fundamentally different between the two societies. And so it's one thing to say, yes, both societies have democratic governments, both societies have a particular ethnic composition, uh, different, uh, similar uh, civil rights, et cetera. But the issue here is really much more narrow, which is whether from the perspective of the criminal sanction regime and associated behaviors, we think of these as comparable polities. And in some, because one of the variables is the, the basis of the analysis is the dissimilarity of one of the variables, that then begs the question, why would we think that the crime processes are sufficiently similar? And so I, you know, and so this, you know, this is almost, it's not a matter that there's a mathematical answer to this. This is a judgment issue as to whether in this particular context, one can translate the qualitative notion of comparability into the more precise notions that are necessary for the interpretation of the difference in difference type of analysis. Okay, the one uh, thing I will grumble about in the paper is I really wish they would not use different scales on uh, their tables, on, on the figures. And the reason for that is to get a sense of the dissimilarity and everything, you really want to know what the, what the rates are, not scaling down something so that the two uh, pictures of, the, uh, of, the, of, of various crime rates look similar now. Because more is involved in simply taking out a mean. It's actually changing the uh, second moment. And so the degrees of fluctuations, et cetera, are simply are not transparent when you, when you do that. But that's obviously a triviality in terms of changing it. But I think that it's important in terms of letting a reader assess the plausibility of the type of comparability you need to have everything on a common scale. So that, that's the only uh, uh, grumbly thing I have to say. Okay, so issue number, so in thinking about comparability, the first one is, is it comparable with respect to objects where you already know one of them is fundamentally different? The second comment I want to make is to recognize that this problem uh, 
has, has, has appeared before. In other words, there, for the last 30, uh, 25 years, been hundreds upon hundreds of papers using cross-country growth regressions to do things such as study growth. Now, I have, a, again, a, a stake in this, but uh, I think the following statements are fair. There's enormous evidence of coefficient heterogeneity across countries, deep nonlinearities in the process that generates growth, and remarkably important residual regional heterogeneity, which is a stilted way of saying stuff that differs across areas that we simply as economists cannot explain. And so given uh, this history in cross-country growth regressions, I come to this exercise worried. In other words, I don't think the cross-country growth literature has been a great success partially because it hasn't respected the heterogeneity of these large, complicated, heterogeneous objects called countries. And so I think that there needs to be a much more uh, affirmative argument on the difference in difference in strategy as opposed to, you know, people say Canada and the U.S. Is, are, sim are similar, because I agree in common language they are. But the issue is for this exercise, uh, and are they, and given the background of cross-country growth regressions where many of the claims in that literature have turned out not to hold once a lot, one allows for uh, heterogeneity across countries or nonlinearities and the like, uh, you know, one, uh, I'd say, there, there are good priors to, to be worried about the robustness of the results once you uh, uh, begin to think from that perspective. Okay, so let, let me uh, sort of illustrate why, why the strategy in the paper uh, uh, might be problematic. And uh, so I, I want to give a slightly different interpretation to the notion of long differences. Um, so one way to talk about a long difference is to say that it's really, and obviously given that all time periods are comparable, it's just nothing more than the average of a bunch of changes. And so what the paper is really doing, the paper is, is equivalent to doing the following, which is looking at the difference in the mean changes in the crime rates between the U.S. and another country, and things are in logs, and comparing that to the mean uh, changes year by year to um, uh, the imprisonment rates. Now, the reason this formulation will be useful to you guys is you can put standard errors in these things as opposed to just having two numbers. Okay, and that, by the way, matters. Okay, so that's the thought experiment in the paper. So then the question I put to the authors is, I want to give you an analogy. It's not fair because it's from another literature. Suppose that as a growth economist, I, I want to know the effect of the physical capital savings rate on a country's growth. The comparable exercise here would be to take the average change in income between the United States and uh, another country and compare that to the average change in the savings rate between the United States and another country. Now, from the perspective of the... Uh, economic growth literature, one would never engage in this exercise, even if I restricted myself, my attention to the United States, Britain, and Canada. And the reason for that is that we don't think of this type of exercise as adequate. Why? Because the theories that exist currently for differences in economic growth across countries involve a plethora of differences uh, different growth determinants. Examples would be differences in monetary and fiscal policy. Another example, even if you just take the solo growth model in its most pristine form, would be the population growth rate differences. And so in other words, even though the countries are comparable, if you actually looked at the panel for the data that one uses in cross-country growth regressions, the exercise would not be well posed because you would have, you'd be leaving out other factors that themselves are, even though the countries are similar, in fact, are different in the sense that they are affecting the growth rates. Now, 
That is not a proof by any means that the exercise here is valid, but it's merely illustrative of what it means not to take a theoretical stance. So the growth literature is quite different. It says we have this plethora of theories. Depending on who the author is, I, put a, I, try to, I want to evaluate a subset of them in the context of growth. And so if you think about things that way, since imprisonment is only one factor determining crime in order to interpret the difference in differences, uh, you need a pretty strong stance in what everything else is determining the crime rate and the imprisonment rate. And I'm not, I think there needs to be an affirmative justification. All right, now a rejoinder that might be given is that, well, the imprisonment rate differences are so big, this just can't be a big, big a fundamental issue. But that's actually not a, uh, uh, a valid response because it isn't just the magnitude of the, of the variable, it's also the coefficient. And so with, again, without knowing what the effect is of all the omitted factors, one can't really draw interpretations. All right, so uh, I'm obviously going way too slow. Uh, so let me uh, uh, skip, uh, uh, merely make the uh, following observation, and that is, there's many final observation on comparability, which is actually a lot of things one could identify that differentiates these quote-unquote comparable countries. You could look at the unemployment rate, you could look at the social uh, uh, welfare net, so on and so forth, which uh, presumably bear upon crime. Uh, but leaving that aside, uh, you know, crime to some extent has to do with people violating uh, rules that society has set. And that, of course, begs the question, are these countries in some sense similar in terms of cultural attitudes? And what I, in the slides, do is I go through a set of examples in the, um, uh, from the uh, World Value Survey, looking at the US, Britain, and Canada, and, so, and sort of make a, an argument that in many cases, one can actually find interesting differences. So you ask the question, is it justified to lie in your own interest? The percentage answering never. Is, uh, is highest for the yield. You know, th these are non-trivial differences, I would assert, in the, uh, in the rates. And then I try to be cute and go through a lot of different examples. Uh, here's one they, where they look pretty similar, which is if it's ever justified to kill in self-defense. So it's not a matter that everything looks, uh, looks right. Here's one I find quite interesting, which is whether uh, you think uh, hard work brings success or luck. And there you have uh, the US believing in the American dream. This, of course, is perverse, because you would think if that's what you believe, you're more likely to be willing to acquire from others. But the, and then the final one, just because the growth literature has made crazy claims about uh, belief in health being conducive to economic growth, there's fundamental differences in the belief on the ultimate penalty. <laughs> all right, so the upshot of all of this was not, <laughs> was simply to say that if you think about attitudes and culture, et cetera, it's easy to identify what looked like substantial heterogeneities between the countries. Now, if I gave the same book to these guys, they could also identify ones where they look similar. So I don't want to, so this, I admit, this was data mining. I wanted to give you examples that would be fun. The digressive comment is that I think that um, in thinking about crime, an omitted factor is that we don't tend to think about the, uh, the issue of ethics. In other words, when we talk about, you know, criminal behavior has an ethical component to it, and I don't think as economists we have a good language for thinking about that. And so uh, I merely put that in as something where I think the uh, uh, economic theory of crime could be enriched in thinking about the, uh, the prescriptive nature of, uh, of morals and not simply sticking things in the utility function. Uh, and, but uh, let me uh, just make that observation. Now, all these comments about comparability do not say anything in the paper is wrong, but they're indications as to why I think a stronger case needs to be made. Okay, so given the, the time, let me say the second big issue has to do with asking questions about the relationship between imprisonment rates, crime, and policy assessment. The authors are 
very fair in saying that the imprisonment rate does reflect a number of factors, in particular severity and certainty of punishment, as well as the responses of criminals to the sanction regime. But that then leads to the question, or beg, ask, forces us to ask the question, is this an interesting relationship? Because at the end of the day, you have a sanction regime, you have a bunch of people that are subjected to it, and in equilibrium, you have crime rates and imprison rates, imprisonment rates. And so at some level, this is comparing endogenous variables, whereas the policy-relevant question is, I change some aspect of the criminal sanction regime, and I ask what the consequences are jointly for imprisonment and crime. Now, in my view, the authors uh, understate the problem of using natural variation in the incarceration rates. Now, to be clear, they understand this problem and they bring it up. Uh, when, but when I say that they, they, uh, they, they, they understate it, uh, what I mean is the following. So one parenthetical comment is that in steady states, there's actually a paper by Bluespin and Nagin in 78 that demonstrated there is no a priori relationship between the steady state imprisonment and crime rates. Everything depends on the elasticities of criminal activity or of the crime rates with respect separately to severity and separately to certainty of punishment. And so I think you want to cite them and your contributions to show that you get similar things in the transition dynamics. Okay, but let me push this a little bit. I'm not, I'm not pushing this very well. Um, what I, I really want to push is that if we think about sanction regimes, we have to be very careful and not just say, well, the, prison, uh, the imprisonment rate somehow is a sufficient statistic for them. Okay? And indeed, we have to even go beyond the standard Beckard model, which treats severity and certainty as the two variables that determine the sanction regime. So as an example, it's a very different statement to say that I have a three strikes policy which essentially takes already long prison sentences and makes them longer, versus saying that for your first offense, you're going to jail for five years. Okay, and so in terms of the, uh, you know, this is a case where the devil's in the details. In other words, the criminal sanction regimes are much more complicated than simply saying there's some object called the expect, uh, some object called P, the probability of apprehension, and some object S called severity. In other words, there's many different ways in which you can structure criminal sanctions, and they're going to clearly affect the degree of deterrence that's, that's occurring. All right, to push this a little bit harder, uh, I'm perfectly willing to believe that the current criminal sanction regime is not optimal in terms of maximizing deterrence for state state prison rates. I mean, there's good arguments, for example, that, uh, that the three strikes policy is not, a, is not cost beneficial. Now, when actually, this is the one slide I wish I had changed, and the reason for that is that uh, it implied something which is not true, and that is that the choice of the sanction regime in the United States was to minimize crime. That's not obvious by any means. There are other justifications for punishment, of which the obvious one is retribution. And so if the issue is the United States has chosen a highly retributive sanction regime, you may not see much of a deterrent effect, whereas a deterrent effect could exist under alternative regimes. And so I think it's important for the paper to respect the complexity of alternative uh, ways of formulating penalties and to respect the complexity of the motivations that we have in assigning penalties. I mean, the conventional trichotomy in, in criminology is incapacitation, deterrence, and retribution. Well, I think that, uh, and I, I, the World Value Survey will justify me on this, uh, that Americans are more retributive. And that's not a, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that simply is how it is. All right, final comment has to do with these long differences. And, uh, you know, these, so a couple of cheap comments is there aren't any standard errors, and it's not clear how the results depend on baselines. But those are actually 
just details. Those are things you can, first one corrects once you think of things in terms of changes. Second, uh, obviously, you can do robustness analysis. I am a little bit more worried about what the interpretation is of averaging the changes. Remember, the thought experiment started off by saying, you know, look at this series. It doesn't look stationary to me. Well, the reason you average stuff is because <laughs> there's something underlying it. That's what a law of large numbers is telling us uh, gets revealed with enough data. And at least to my eyes, doing uh, my ocular statistics, uh, I didn't see stationarity in these series. And so I'm not sure what the averaging even is going to tell us. And so there, I think there needs to be a, a more clear case as to the relationship between this type of a-theoretical time series analysis and the relevant objects of inquiry. Okay. So the bottom line, at least from my perspective, is that we need more explicit choice theory, more uh, economic theory, if you will, to, uh, to produce interpretable results. I'm personally skeptical that one can say much about general equilibrium effects uh, You simply uh, engaging in a theoretical exercise. And I hope that the reasons I've given you illustrate some of the, the reasons why that's difficult. OK, that all said, I want to be clear. That's, first of all, a judgment. And the second comment is, to say that maybe general equilibrium is too heroic is not the same thing as you learn nothing from these exercises. Two obvious examples in macroeconomics is vector autoregressions and co-integration analyses, which are a-theoretical evaluations of data, have proven to be informative to macroeconomists. If I had been more sensitive to who's in the audience, I'd, I'd give you two easier examples. The Barsky-Myron paper on seasonality and the Hamilton paper on switching regimes, both, at least for me, made me think differently about the relevant theory for business cycles. And so it's not a matter that one learns nothing from a-theoretical exercises. It's a matter of what one learns and sort of the extent to which one can translate it into policy. And so that's why my conclusion on the paper, as I said, as I, said, as I seem to be a steps of Scotland, is that uh, the verdict on the paper, I'm going to call the uh, Scottish verdict, not proven. But uh, the research program, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about because I think there's going to be a, a contribution, and I'm being pretentious in what I call the abductive analysis of sanction policy. Now, what I mean by abduction is, at the end of the day, one is interested in the best explanation of a phenomenon or the best Evaluate, uh, uh, forecast, and that means you bring a whole host of evidence, some qualitative, some quantitative together. That's the, you know, that's the stuff of, of social science, and this is going to be a part of it. So let me stop there. Thank you very much. That's right. Unless you're willing to be a graduate of Michigan College. <laughs> Well, thanks very much, uh, Justin and Sarath, um, for the paper, and thanks, Steve, for your comments. Um, this is a neat exercise and gives us a chance to, to talk about. Uh, I haven't had um, much occasion to think about uh, crime and punishment uh, for a while, and this is kind of a nice uh, and definitely a, uh, um, a, new, a new approach, one that has not been tr uh, tried in the literature before. And so let me, let me try to... Uh, um, let me let me try to to uh, put it in context of the things that 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 uh, uh, applied guys uh, like myself and Justin and Sarath have done uh, prior to this work. Um, there's been a lot of talk, and, and Steve made a good good point about the scales. Um, but the fact that um, the robbery rates in the U.S. and Canada um, follow a similar path, yet they're on a on a, on a vastly different scale, and and uh, Justin's explanation was that the Canadians are are inherently polite. Um, they have a varying degree of politeness, but it, but it, but it, and and so I've I've done some work thinking about this, and I really think what's going on is that we're just more productive um, than the Canadians, and so we're able to produce twice as many 
robberies. Um, but the other way to think about this, and I was trying to channel my inner Jeff Myron when I wrote this, and it really I think what's going on is that it's, um, in the US it's the private market providing redistribution of wealth. And, um, and in Europe that, that redistribution is being crowded out by the government um, and, and, and also in Canada. So, um, you know, so this is, a, this is a totally different exercise than people have tried in the, the crime uh, and economics literature before. I mean, as I'll show you in a few slides from now, people, uh, um, Justin is much more, and, and Sarath now, they have, a, they, have a, they have a nice paper together on this that, that they uh, put out a working paper last year. They're associated with these, these really tight uh, uh, regression discontinuity approaches, you know, like while well, someone is uh, uh, 17 uh, years and, and 11 months old and what happens on their, their 18th birthday, um, they'll face a much stricter punishment regime and do you see them commit lots of crimes on it? Turns out there's a lot of people who get drunk on their 18th and 21st birthday. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, do you, using very, uh, a very tight identification from uh, um, very, very sort of narrow identification where you can really control for the individual person or the individual state, um, that kind of thing. So this is a totally different uh, um, exercise. So it's a bit back to the future um, in terms of uh, us using almost a more macro, you know, it's a more macro kind of approach. We've got um, two variables. We're going to difference across two countries. We don't have standard errors. Um, so this, this is kind of like a back to the future kind of thing. But I think there might be some, uh, there, might, there might be something that we can get out of it um, at the end of the day. Um, let me see if I can get the, uh, but you know, I, it also, Psychologically, I'm worried that Justin has, has some sort of repressed macro impulse he's trying to work through, um, <laughs> and, and, um, and that, that's why I brought up this slide. Um, and and um, I thought the best line of the paper, which which uh, luckily Justin repeated for us, was that the prison population evolves slowly, like the temperature in the ocean. Um, I'm not sure if one of you was an English minor or something, but that's a. Uh, and maybe the paper is going to eventually have some conclusions on climate change, but that was a uh, um, that was a nice. Uh, that was a nice refreshing break from the, from, from the statistics. All right, so what are we doing in the paper? Well, I mean, essentially the problem is, as, I've, as, as Steve pointed out, we're differencing across two countries. Um, we've got multiple endogenous variables. I wrote at least two, but you know, you've got the incarceration rate and the crime rate. And it turns out that the object of interest is not even necessarily the, the change in the uh, um, incarceration rate on the change of the crime rate, but it's really the policy variable is really uh, sentence severity, maybe either probability of apprehension or severity mm -hmm. of punishment. And so um, you've got uh, incarceration depends on crime and crime depends on incarceration. Um, and we don't, and, and really by incarceration, we're really trying to proxy for uh, really what we care about is S. Um, and so one of my suggestions later in the slides is gonna be that rather than use uh, Q as a proxy, actually go out and measure S to the extent that you can. Um, actually just look for, look at, at changes in S. Um, and uh, let's see, so we've got the, you've got two equations, so how could you possibly identify it? Well, you're not, a, you, you, we know that we're not identified. But if you thought of the, the enormous jump in, um, in US, the US incarceration rate, and it is, and there is in fact a big change in sentencing regimes in the US. If you think of that as an enormous jump, as being an exogenous policy shift that's, that's unrelated to the trend in crime, then you could, uh, perhaps you could identify uh, 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 DCDS, and that's what they want. Of course, we observe uh, delta C, delta Q, and, and Justin pointed out there's a, there's a neat dynamic to this whole, uh, uh, the way this would play out. And they've got in the paper a bunch of corrections. So if you're looking at, if you really care about DCDS, but you want, uh, um, 
if that's what you care about, but you're observing uh, the incarceration rate, they come up with the corrections. They say, well, under, uh, for example, under an elasticity, a deterrence elasticity of minus 0.4, you'd want to uh, scale down your, your DCDQ by about uh, uh, points that you'd want to multiply by like 0.67. So that, that's, um, so they're, they're thinking hard about that. Um, what else do I want to point out? Um, and of course, they're going to do it. They, they won't just uh, look at the uh, change in the U.S., but they'll difference out Canada, um, where people are polite but following a similar trend. Um, when you see this this massive jump in the U.S. incarceration rate, it does give you some hope that well, you know, maybe there is a big policy shock that can be exploited. And as Steve said, if the other um, if the other confounding variables are not experiencing similar, or the shocks they're experiencing are unrelated to this massive shock, you know maybe you have some hope of getting some identification off of this. Um, so what do they find? Well, the the the, the paper um, and Justin didn't have time to get to all this, but the paper's full of all kinds of uh, differences and differences across the two sets of countries and across different um, uh, different crimes. And so, you know the. They come up with some reasonable sounding estimates. Uh, if you look, uh, for example, in motor vehicles, the, there's a 56% uh, uh, drop in the US relative to a 92% drop, sorry, a 56% drop in, the, in Canada uh, in motor vehicle thefts, and there's a 92% drop in the US, and, but a, you know, a tenfold increase in incarceration in the US, so it gives you um, this sort of overall uh, diff of minus 0.11. And that would, that would incorporate both deterrence in their analysis. That'd be both the deterrence effect and the incapacitation effect. Um, um, the thing it's the estimates are kind of all over the map, depending on which endpoints you pick and which crimes you use. So um, I mean, that, in some ways, that's a good thing, because then you can pick, if you're writing an op-ed, you, uh, you can find one you like. Um, but, you know, it's not, not crazy. Um, you know, I was wondering, all these world value surveys about, is, is it okay to, to lie when it's in your interest? Are those social scientists, or are those of all, of all people in the survey? Um, it had to be all people, otherwise we'd open 100. Uh, excellent. Um, okay, and um, so here's what, here's, what the, here's what the main tables look like. Um, this is, the, this is a, an expanded set of those, uh, um, those differences and differences, and like this is the minus point one one I just pointed out, but you know, you have some, um, depending on where you, depending on which endpoints you use, what you want to use as your starting point, and, um, and which crime rate you do see. Um, um, you, you know, and so one, one thing, I, I guess, a, uh, one conclusion you could reach is that there's not the evidence that there's been a huge uh, fall in crime rates in the U.S., given the huge run-up, is, is mixed. You know, I mean, that's one way you could think about this. Um, so uh, you certainly couldn't use these data to prove, be very difficult to use these data to prove that uh, the incarceration rate had contributed to the massive drop in crime that we've had. So, uh, so one obvious point is, well, to the extent that you can, maybe just use sentence length directly uh, rather than incarceration rates. Um, and then, as I, as I said when I started this discussion, there's all kinds of, uh, this is the first macro paper I've really seen on, uh, macro cross-country growth paper I've seen on uh, uh, crime and sentencing. And there's all kinds of interesting uh, policy differentials you could use to identify deterrence effects or incapacitation effects. And, and so um, Justin Sarath have another paper out that looks specifically at the age of majority and, and in most states when you, uh, if, you're, if you're arrested or charged as an 18-year-old, uh, you face a, a, a much more massive penalty. And they ask, well, do you see a drop off in offenses uh, when people are uh, just after they turn 18? And, and if, I'm, if I read the paper correctly, the answer is no, you don't. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then not only do you have, diff not only do you have people change, uh, 
turning from 17 to 18, but then you've got states who actually flip from uh, flip the age of majority from 18 back to 17, or 18 down to 17, and so you can you can look at the difference. You could do a difference in difference because you can look just within a state that made the change. And I, there's somewhere in here, there's some there's some nice charts. Um, this, this is going to be a little bit hard to ex, for me to explain nicely, but um, this is the uh, these are histograms of the age profiles of arrest. And if there was, a, and, 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 and the author's argument is that if there was an enormous deterrence effect, you'd see you'd, these histograms would look pretty ugly and they'd have a big drop off, right, at when people hit the age of majority. But in fact, you see a, a relatively smooth histogram. Um, it comes through a little bit better in this picture, which is that um, if you look, some of these are, uh, these are all, uh, this is the, this, this, this is the, uh, the number of arrests. Um, and uh, right around age 17. And some of these cohorts are facing a, uh, um, an age of majority where, where, where uh, 18 is the age of majority, and some are facing where 17 is the age of majority. But in all cases, it just looks smooth. You don't see, you don't see a big change in, in uh, behavior, or at least arrests. You don't see a big change in arrests, regardless of, of what the regime is or whether you're right at the discontinuity. So, that, that, um, so, that, so that's a, a more... Uh, this, this sort of thing I'm used to uh, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm going through these papers. Um, and then a similar kind of, a, a, a diff, just a different cut of the data. I think this, this is in Florida. Um, they're looking for uh, discontinuities right around 18 um, in, in the weekly probability of arrest. So you, people don't go nuts on their 18th birthday. So those of you who have kids who are about to turn 18, um, you rest assured that their, their, their arrest probability is going to remain about the same. Um, you know, and then, they, they, then so they find, they're finding no... Um, they're finding no deterrence in that paper. And there's an earlier McCrary and Lee paper, which does that find the same thing too? Same thing. Uh, it finds the same thing. So that, um, of course, that doesn't fit my prior. So I'm going to, at the end of this, I'll throw out uh, the data and just tell you my priors. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think it's important, uh, to be honest, at least show you what uh, intelligent people have found. Um, Kessler and Levitt um, do find something that's consistent with my priors, which is that um, they look at, um, I think it's the three strikes laws, they're, they're, uh, um, uh, or it's, no, it's sentence enhancements. So they use sentence enhancements in California, and they say, look, um, there's not going to be any in the short run, according to, to Justin and Sarath's logic, which is correct, you're not going to see... Um, um, uh, you're not going to see a massive run-up in incarceration, and you're not going to have the only effects that can, you're not going to see a big effects from incapacitation from this because nobody's been incapacitated yet. All that can happen in the short run is that there's uh, deterrence effects from these stiffer penalties. And so, you know, if you look, there's different kinds of crimes which get sentence, sentence enhancements in California. And this is, this is an older paper, hence the, the lovely font. Um, the thing looks like it was rescued from the, it looks like one of those New York Times articles from the uh, gold, gold standard, Great Depression kind of stuff. Um, the, uh, you see that um, in 80, the, the policy change comes in around uh, 81. And you see this big fall off in 81 in the eligible crimes, which, which I think, unfortunately for the paper, are all the, the deadly, dangerous, violent ones that have been going up like crazy. Um, and the non-eligible crimes, uh, you don't see a move. And so they conclude, in fact, that they take the difference of these two. Uh, they, they take the difference between the eligible and the non-eligible crimes as their, as their deterrence effect. And they, they, so they have a massive deterrence effect that they're finding in this paper. Um, now... Um, then he, finally, I'll just say that um, Levitt has a nice paper on, uh, that tries to separate deterrence and incapacitation where they, um, he, there, there's a bunch of algebra to look at. Well, if you're imprisoning, say, a, a robber 
what's the likelihood that that robber, when they get out, you know, they, they, they use data to tell them the likelihood that that person's going to commit burglary, larceny, auto theft, and how many. And so they figure out, they have mechanical estimates of incapacitation, they estimate the total effect of uh, the imprisonment regime, and they subtract the two. And so you get finally ending with columns five and six, which separate deterrence and incapacitation. And um, they find for most crimes, they don't think in incapacitation is a, very, is a very big part of the story. Um, Oh, so here's a chart I just threw in. Um, uh, thank you um, to the Cato Institute staff for getting all, all my constant changes. This one took place a half an hour ago. Um, Pew, Pew Institute um, uh, re just put out a study just an analyzing some of the Justice Department statistics on uh, sentence length. And there is tremendous uh, cross-state variation in uh, God bless Georgia, sentences are up 75% since, uh, time served is up 75% since 1990. Um, and, and states like, like my home state are much smaller. Uh, oh, I guess New, Ham New Hampshire New Hampshire's a, 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 a modest, a, a more modest size outlier. But you know, you could in theory. There's cross state. We don't have to just go. Uh, we don't have to necessarily just go cross uh, cross two countries. We could try cross state. Obviously, criminals can move around, so it's not. Uh, um, there, none, none of these methodologies are perfect, and that's why I like the, the abduction word, which I thought was about exercising um, uh, your, your, your core muscles. Um, the, I like the abduction word, because you know, look, at, look at this from all angles, and I'll, I'll give an example at the end where um, you know, there's, there's certainly things to be learned from looking at this problem from different angles, and if you get different answers, you ask why. Um, so anyway, there's tons of cross-state variation that one might, uh, might want to use to try to identify this. Um, my last point, I keep saying it's my last point, but the, uh, this is my last, last point, which is that uh, it's very important to think about this big run-up in crime, what prisoners, right? It's not like all, uh, it, it's, it's not like there's a single crime out there and a single median sentence that's going to apply. And so I think one of the big worries in the U.S. is that the big run-up is imprisonment of drug offenders. And so if, in fact, and I'm going to, I'll show you some evidence in a second to, to suggest that that's not the only thing that's happened in terms of increased incarceration. But if that was the deal, if these were all nonviolent drug offenders who did no harm to anybody else and did not commit robberies um, or assault, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see any, any uh, change in violent crime from a run-up in incarceration rates. Um, however, in fact, there's, I think... It's a mixed story. While uh, um, from, if you go from 90, 1990 to now, um, drug offenders are roughly a constant proportion of the people who are incarcerated. But if you look from 60 to, uh, if, you, if you look from 60 to now, they've gone from like 2% to 20%, and, you know, or 2% to 17%. But from 90 to now, it's like 17% to 17%. So the, uh, um, I think separating it by crime type would... The, the downside of that, of course, is that people are mobile across crime. They substitute across crime types. And in particular, you think the drug offenders might be committing robberies to support um, their interest in, in purchasing drugs. And so you might not, you might not want to only rely on you know, a within, uh, within crime analysis, but it'd be a, uh, it's an important thing to think about. And this is just, the, the, there's just some stats showing. In, in, in federal prison, uh, in particular, which is only a small part of the total incarcerated folks, the, the rise in the fraction that are in for drug offenses is enormous. You know, from 70 uh, to now, it's gone from 16% to in the 50s. But that's partly federal policy and, and it's certainly not re representative. Um, so is incapac incapacitation um, and deterrence a big deal or not? Um, well, like I said, they have large and small numbers in the paper. 
for some of the crimes, I, I don't completely buy that, you know, Free, Freeman's argument was, and I think he was, he, was, he was applying it to specific crimes, that, well, if you take, the drug, you take a drug dealer off the street, um, they'll just be replaced by someone else, and that seems totally plausible. But something like robbery, you think there's just an, a very large number of possible uh, opportunities for robbery. I don't, I don't, my, my theory suggests that that's not the, uh, the limiting factor, is not the number of opportunities. And so I don't know that um, I would necessarily, uh, you know, my theory tells me that the, uh, for certain crimes, locking people up would have an, a big incapacitation effect, or at least it could. Um, so, uh, and since Steve wanted more theory, that, that's my theory. Um, okay, so, uh, so, so that is it. And um, the word peer effects, despite the fact that Steve and I um, were standing in front of you, we didn't mention the peer, peer effects at all, but certainly that's something that could amplify uh, uh, both the value of incapacitation and deterrence, but particularly incapacitation. If you're pulling uh, dangerous people off the street, that may... Uh, um, that may also uh, reduce their, their uh, friend's uh, chance of engaging in criminal behavior. So with that said, I will, uh, oh, crack epidemic, I'm glad Justin mentioned it, big deal, uh, and something that's not accounted for in the data, and that could uh, certainly be the, one of the, uh, the missing variables that, that, that Steve talked about. So with that said, I will, I will shut up and we can take questions. Great.